Well, as we come to our study of uh, God's Word this morning, we have the joy of getting uh, some insights in Luke chapter 6 into the 12 men that Christ chose to be his apostles. You can uh, turn in your Bibles there if you're not there already, to Luke's Gospel. Today we're going to get an overview of the 12, uh, the list of names that are there in Luke 6, 14 to 16. As we know, Jesus came down from the mountain having prayed all night before the selection of these men. He summoned all his disciples, probably dozens of them, maybe a hundred or more, and he chose from them twelve whom he named apostles. Let's look at that list of names starting there in Luke 6.14. Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew his brother, and James and John, and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. We've spent time over the past two weeks uh, really learning the significance of this group of men, this list of names, the significance of the apostles and the apostolic ministry. These men listed here are nothing less than the foundation of the church, an institution that at this time, at this moment, had not yet been revealed and prior to the coming of Jesus Christ, it was hidden in a mystery. But they were always the sovereign plan of God. Jesus chose them to be the foundation of this new institution called the church. Jesus Christ taught them, not only selected them, but He taught them, trained them, deployed them. He filled them with the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit Himself personally ensured the accuracy and the reliability of their ministry. The Spirit Himself guaranteed the integrity and the strength of the foundation that they laid. And the Spirit Himself empowered them supernaturally to do what no man is able to do in his own strength. These men are an amazing provision for the church and also a necessary provision, a foundational provision, because without them there is no such thing as the church or foundation on which it would rest. It's really impossible to overstate the importance of the apostles. But we need to remember at the same time that it is Jesus Christ Himself who is the cornerstone of that foundation. And without Jesus Christ, there would be no foundation. He's the guiding line for all true doctrine. He's the ultimate end of all true doctrine. He is the master builder, the one who is at work to join all of us together. Not so much brick by brick. It's an organic thing going on here. He's growing us together life on life. He's joining us together to erect this holy spiritual temple in the Lord. This is where God dwells. You might think of it this way. We are where God dwells by the Holy Spirit. It's a marvelous thing. The whole structure, though, started with these men. These 12 very ordinary, very common men. They were used mightily of God to accomplish great things, but we must never forget that at the end of the day, they are just men. And the closer we look, the clearer it is that we need to look beyond them for an explanation for all that came out of them. We need to look beyond them and above them to understand their strength, their steadfastness, their integrity. And the closer we look, the more we inspect, the more we investigate, we discover that the real reason they are what they are is Jesus Christ. That's the same thing with all of us. So for the next several weeks, we're going to take the time to get some clear character sketches of these men because they are going to be involved in the rest of the story. Starting here and all the way through the rest of Luke into Acts, all the way through Acts, We're going to see these men. They're going to show up again and again. These men are featured from here on out and they become instruments in the Master's hands to build the church, to teach the church, to stabilize it, to grow it. In fact, right after they're named, they ran right into training as Jesus teaches them through the Sermon on the Mount. But for today, I want to start out 
with a general overview of these 12 ordinary men. And in fact, that's the title of this morning's sermon, A General Overview of 12 Ordinary Men. And you say, could you have chosen a more boring title? No, probably not. I was, I was really working on that, just the, the sheer boredom. But if you think the title is bad, check out the outline points. If you haven't glanced at them already in your bulletin, take a look at your bulletin because these are really ordinary. Some general introductions, some general observations. Point number three, guess what? It's some general lessons and then some general cautions. Chuck told me those are very well alliterated, Travis. That's true, but they're also pretty boring. And I can assure you, I've given you no false advertising. But the boring, very ordinary and plain title, the outline points, they really are quite fitting, aren't they? I certainly don't intend to make a point with the outline itself, but it really does illustrate the, the heart of today's study. As the psalmist said, Psalm 115, verse 1, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to Your name give glory for the sake of Your steadfast love and Your faithfulness. And that's what these men show us. It's not to us. It's not, there's no human explanation for any of this. It's all to the glory of God, the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. As the Reformers put it, soli deo gloria, right? To God alone be the glory. Now, having said that, though, I do believe that this general overview of these 12 ordinary men is going to be instructive for us and provide us some food for thought. We're going to set a course this morning, a baseline, a little foundation to launch future studies so we can get some character sketches on these apostles. And we're going to then enjoy the fruit of that over the next few weeks as we study these men. So, without further ado, let's start wading through the plain vanilla outline with point one, some general introductions. General introductions. We have noted before in the past couple of weeks that this list of apostles is just one of four lists. The, the list can be found in Matthew 10, verses 2-4. to 4. Mark 3, verses 16-19. to 19. There's this one here in Luke 6, 14-16. And then there's another one in Acts chapter 1, verse 13. The one in Acts, as we pointed out, is missing Judas Iscariot due to his defection and suicide. The context of that list in Acts 1.13 is the need to replace Judas with Matthias and thus the absence of his name. We saw that last week. But by comparing these lists, if you put them, as I did, you put them in a table, in a Word document, and you compare the names side by side, we found out that each list is organized into the same three groups. Each of the three groups of names has four names each for a total, three times four is twelve. Twelve names in the entire list. The names in all three of the groups are the same. Even though in a couple of them, one is ordered before the other and vice versa. Also in each of the groups, the same name heads each list in each of the groups. So for example, the first group consists of Peter and Andrew and James and John. And Peter, he is always listed at the first of that list. He's the head of that list. The second group, that consists of Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, and Thomas. And Philip is at the head of that list. The final group consists of James, son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, Judas, son of James, and then Judas Iscariot. And in that list, James, son of Alphaeus, is always first. Judas Iscariot always last. Now, what those lists show with these three distinct groups of apostles, each group headed by the same name, those lists reveal what is clearly portrayed in the Gospel narratives, that there were three different levels of intimacy among the twelve apostles. You might think of them as concentric circles of intimacy with a close circle and then a circle that's a little further out and then a circle that's even more remote. Some were relationally closer to Christ than others, and some were more distant relationally to him than others. Even if you don't have all the names of the twelve apostles memorized, you can even see through a superficial familiarity with the New Testament, that'll show you that Peter, James, and John, you know that those three men occupied a very special place with the Lord. 
for better or worse, they always seem to be right there at the center of all the action. When Jesus entered into the inner room of Jairus' house to, uh, to raise his daughter from the dead in Luke 8.51, he allowed only three of his twelve apostles to accompany him into that room. Peter, James, and John. He could have chosen any of the twelve, but he chose those three. Later on, it was those same three who were to witness something else that the other apostles would not witness. He chose Peter, James, and John again to accompany him. He told the other apostles, Truly, truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. And six days later, the some standing here were just a privileged few. Peter, James, and John, they're the ones who were with Him on the holy mountain. They're the ones who saw Him transfigured before them with blazing white So Peter, James, and John do stand in a privileged position, even among the twelve. All twelve of them were privileged compared to the rest of the disciples. And obviously, Jesus' disciples were privileged compared to the rest of Judea and Jerusalem and Galilee. But these three were very close. They were relationally closer than the rest. In the list of the twelve apostles, they are in that closest circle. Andrew is thrown in there with them, included with them, probably dragged in as Simon Peter's brother. Knowing Peter's character, he would have done that. But it's interesting that the first group within the apostles, because of Andrew, they were among the first of Jesus' disciples. In fact, if you'd like, go ahead and turn there for a moment to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, just to see a couple things in that chapter about their early relationship with Jesus Christ. We read in John 1.35 and following that it was Andrew who left John the Baptist. He was originally a disciple of John the Baptist, as were some of the others, but he left John the Baptist to follow Jesus. Verse 41 says that before he started following Jesus, he first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah. And he brought him to Jesus. And even at that point, Andrew's name starts to be eclipsed behind his brother's big personality and Jesus' sovereign choice as well. Andrew brought his brother to Simon, or his brother Simon to Jesus, and Jesus took one look and said, verse 42, John chapter 1, You're Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter or the rock. As we're soon going to find out, Jesus wasn't noticing at that moment Simon's rock-like firmness. Early on, rock is probably more what described his head rather than his, his actual character. But Jesus, here is even at this early stage, He's speaking prophetically about what He intended to do in Simon. To take a man who really could be as unstable as water and turn him into a bedrock of apostolic foundation. Also, there in John's Gospel, immediately after this Introduction to Andrew and Simon. Two of the apostles in the innermost circle were introduced to the leader who is in the second group. That's Philip. It says in John 1.43 that the next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip. It's interesting. He found him like he was looking for him because he was. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. There's the connection that Philip had with them. Verse 45, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Philip and Nathanael. Nathanael, by the way, is another name for Bartholomew. Those two names, Philip and Nathanael, Philip and Bartholomew, those are in the second list. They also had an early introduction to Jesus. But it's interesting how Nathaniel's reply to Philip gives us an insight into his character. Something that really would naturally keep him slightly more distant in a relational sense to Jesus. Look in verse 46. As John, the the beloved apostle, he writes in his narrative here, Nathaniel said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? bit snarky, isn't it? But Philip said to him, come and see. And you could see even in those that interaction, that interplay between these two men, something about their character and their nature. 
those two, Philip and Nathaniel, Philip and Bartholomew, those are in the second tier of disciples. Then there's a third group, another group there, even more remote. And except for that final name on the list, his name will live in infamy, Judas Iscariot, those other names, James son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, Judas son of James, those men are all relatively unknown to us. There's something instructive about that in and of itself. We're all going to get more familiar with these men in the coming weeks, but for now, let's just get a brief introduction to them, and we're going to start with Simon Peter and Andrew. As you know, these two men are brothers, sons of a, a man named John. And Jesus said, even at their first meeting, John 1.42, you are Simon, son of John. Simon and Andrew were from Bethsaida on the north shore, the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee, almost the furthest north you can get. And by the time Jesus entered into ministry, they had moved to Capernaum, probably years before. But that was just six miles to the west of Bethsaida. So these men grew up on the lake, very familiar with the lake, and in particular with its fishing industry. When they went into business for themselves, it was a fishing business. So in Capernaum, they had established themselves. They built up a solid business, did well enough to own a couple of fishing boats. We don't know a lot about Andrew. After those early days in ministry, we don't hear much about him anymore. But Peter, we do know a lot about, don't we? And we're going to have a lot more to say about him next week. But Peter, he's the bold spokesman, the primary spokesman for the apostles. He's the de facto leader of the twelve. If for any reason, he just gets himself out in front and throws himself in front of the group at all times. Sometimes he's the hero, other times he's the dog. But uh, that makes him an encouragement to us all, I think. Sometimes seeing parts of our own character in Peter. There's no wonder he plays prominently in the biblical text. Peter wrote two, the two epistles bearing his name, First and Second Peter. He also is the apostle who informed the writing of Mark's gospel. So if you think of Mark, think of Peter standing behind him and over his shoulder. As I said, Simon, Peter, and Andrew, they were fishermen. And they were business partners in Capernaum with the next two men on the list, James and John. James is the older brother, which is why he's named first before John. John is the younger brother. And they are the two sons of Zebedee, a man who seems to have, have been at the time very, or fairly well known. They're called the two sons of Zebedee often, and that speaks to some level of prominence that their father had. And his prominence extended even to as far as Jerusalem. If you're in John, you can flip over toward the end of that gospel and look at chapter 18, John 18 and verse 15. When Jesus was there in custody, having been betrayed by Judas there in the beginning of the chapter, it comes down, he's in custody, he's taken for this kangaroo court, this false pseudo-trial. He's taken to the high priest Annas and taken to his house. And in John 18.15, it says that Simon Peter followed Jesus and so did another disciple. That's how John typically referred to himself throughout the Gospel that he authored as this unnamed disciple. Or sometimes he calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. That's almost even better than using his name, isn't it? Kind of throw that in all the time. I'm, I'm close to him, you know. I'm the disciple Jesus loved. But it says there in John 18.15, Simon Peter followed Jesus and so did another disciple. And since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest, but Peter stood outside the, the door. And so the other disciple, again it says, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. Isn't that interesting? He is known by name to the high priest and he's able to enter freely. And he also seems to bear some level of authority, some level of influence as he goes and speaks to the servant girl. And she doesn't exclude Peter, but lets him in. We don't know the exact connection of this family, but James and John seem to enjoy some advantages through the connections of their father Zebedee with this privileged access to the high priest's house. Another interesting fact about the family of James and John is the name of their mother. The name of their mother. Her name is Salome. Salome is the sister of Mary, mother of Jesus. That puts James and John in close family relation to Jesus himself, right? 
They're cousins. That's interesting. Jesus kept believing family close to him. His own brothers rejected him early on, uh, even though they came to believe later. And actually, God used them to author two books of Scripture, the book of James and the book of Jude. But his own brothers rejected him early on, and they weren't part of his close disciples or his apostles, but these two cousins, they become part of his innermost circle of the apostles. James, as a figure, he was prominent among the early apostles. He was a powerful leader, very strong personality, but he died early. He was the first to die as a martyr. He was killed by Herod Agrippa, and that's listed there in Acts 12, 1 and 2. So he, Herod chose to make an example out of James because he was the leader of that Jerusalem church, the Jerusalem council. When he died, his brother John was the only one left representing that family and he was the last of the apostles to die. So isn't it interesting, James and John, the first and last of the apostles uh, in that apostolic age. John, he wrote the Gospel of John. He wrote the three epistles that bear his name, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and he also authored the book of Revelation. It's interesting to see there in the beginning of the book of Revelation, by the time that John wrote down that book, that revelation that he received from Jesus Christ, and he wrote it down, there is no hint whatsoever of the uh, familial familiarity that existed on earth between John and his cousin Jesus. When the risen Lord Jesus Christ appears to John, while John is in exile on the island of Patmos, John in writing Revelation 1.17 says, When I saw Him, when I saw Him in His glorious appearance, His resurrected form, I fell at His feet as though dead. So family connections meant nothing at that point. The only thing that existed at that point was the true relation that He had to Jesus Christ, that of Savior to saved, that of Lord and Master to slave and servant. Another of Jesus' cousins is also among the twelve. But before we meet him, let's look first at two more pairs of names, starting with Philip and Bartholomew. Philip and Bartholomew. As I mentioned already, Philip. He's the first name in the second group of disciples. From what we can tell, he was an eager learner. He's, he's interested, he's curious, and he often seems to struggle to understand what Jesus is, is saying and doing at the time. But he's eager to learn. That is a great quality in a disciple, isn't it? To be teachable, to be curious, to be hungry. Even if we don't get it. That makes Philip a pretty typical disciple. Pretty relatable to most of us. Philip and Simon Peter's brother Andrew they seem to have, have had a, a good friendship, shared a friendship. We saw in John 1.43, they're both from the same hometown of Bethsaida. In that sense, Philip forms a link between the first and second groups of apostles. He and Andrew have a, have a link, share a hometown, and then he's the one who went and found Nathaniel. And Nathaniel takes us into the second list. As I mentioned, Nathaniel is Bartholomew. The name Bartholomew literally means son of Talmai, which either speaks to the prominence of his father, as he's known as the Bartholomew, Bar and then son of Talmai. So it could speak to the prominence of his father. Or it could refer to some prominent trait that belonged to his father, which was also notable in him. It's hard to tell which. But he's the one of whom Jesus said, Behold, an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. <laughs> this Bartholomew, this, this Nathaniel guy, he's guileless. He's plain speaking. He's straightforward. You might think of him like a, a Northeasterner. Maybe someone from New Jersey or New York who tells you exactly what they think, even if you don't really want to know. The next two men in the list, these round out the, the second group of apostles, Matthew and Thomas. Matthew and Thomas. Matthew, as we know, we've already been introduced to him in Luke 5.27 and following, but he's the former tax collector. Among these Galileans, he would not have fit in naturally among this group. He was a collaborator with the Romans. And that connected him to the political collaborators in Jerusalem. All the cronies that the Galileans hated. Here's Matthew among them. 
Perhaps the banquet that Matthew threw for Jesus in that inner circle, Simon and Andrew, James and John, they were all in attendance there at the time. Perhaps Jesus used that as an occasion to help all of them overcome their prejudices and to receive this newcomer into their fellowship of discipleship. But we love Matthew's story, don't we? This is just that his inclusion in the twelve is such an incredible story of grace. And even more so when you consider how mightily Christ used him. Matthew was good with a pen. He was good with writing, mostly keeping ledgers and finding out who owed what. But God had another use for that pen. He became the tool for the authorship of the earliest gospel, the Gospel of Matthew. A man often paired with Matthew is Thomas in the lists. He's a name that's apparently his name Thomas is Aramaic in origin, means twin. You may remember in John's Gospel, three times in John's Gospel, in fact, Thomas is called Didymus, Didymus, which means the twin. Don't know really what that refers to, twin of whom, we don't know, but that's what the disciples called him as the twin. He's better remembered as Doubting Thomas. He's kind of a guy who had a little bit more of a pessimistic nature. Know anybody like that? Glass half empty kind of a guy, you know? Always the Johnny rain cloud in your midst telling you everything that bad is going to... He's always quoting Murphy's Law to you. If anything bad can can happen, it will. Thanks, Eeyore. Appreciate that. When the rejoicing disciples, when when the apostles came to Thomas and they talked to him about the risen Lord, their enthusiasm is ever so slightly diminished by the response of Thomas. John 20.25, he said, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, unless I put my finger into the mark of the nails, place my hand into his side, I'm not likely to believe. He says, I will never believe. Isn't that interesting? It's because of that response that some people like like atheists love to... he's, He's the atheist saint, Right? But some people like those atheists. They like to cheer him on as the first skeptic. And that judgment is entirely wrong. It's not right at all. Thomas is no skeptic in that comment. His remark is actually an expression of deep sadness. A disappointment in the crucifixion. We'll see that later on as we talk about his character, but he really did want to worship Jesus Christ and follow Him to the very end. And when the crucifixion happened, he thought, this is the end. This is the end. He was so crushed in despair, and really it's a manifest sign of his unbelief at the moment. But the fact that he became known by tradition as the apostle who visited either Persia or India, maybe both, it's a witness to the truth of the resurrection. That out of that deep despair, and even out of that unbelief, comes great belief and great strength as he's the apostle to the East. Another group of apostles, third group, This is the group that's most remote, least known to us. James and Simon and Judas. James, son of Alphaeus. He's also known as James the Less, James the Younger, or simply, you could call him Little James. uh, Or Little Jimmy, if you like. That's not too irreverent. But in Mark 15.40, he's called James Mikros. Mikros in Greek. Micro. He's a small one, which could be a moniker that refers to a small stature, a diminutive size, or probably more likely, just small or lesser in relation to Big James, Big Jimmy, Big Jim, the son of Zebedee. So it could refer to his prominence compared to that mighty apostle, the son of Zebedee, James, one of the sons of thunder, right? Not much is known about this little James. But as James, the son of Alphaeus, it would appear that he's also one of those apostles who's related to Jesus Christ. There's strong evidence that the Kloppus of, uh, or Kleopas is also how his name is written, John 19.25, is the same man as James's father, also known as Alphaeus. Kloppus, or Cleopas appears to be the brother of Joseph, which would make James, the son of Alphaeus, another of Jesus' cousins, but this one on his father's side, so even more remote than being on his mother's side, Mary. The next man, Simon the Zealot, Simon the Zealot. The Zealot. That associates him with a political party of anti-Roman sentiment. Strong anti-Roman sentiment. Often violently opposed to Rome. Whether or not Simon was a card-carrying member of the Zealot party is not fully known. 
But it was a group, this zealot party, was a group that was prone to use violence to achieve political ends. We're starting to see more of that violence achieving political ends in our own country, aren't we? So, this zealot party, they were prone to violence. And some of them, actually, a group of them became assassins. Some of you may know the name of this assassin group. They're called the Sicarii. They assassinated Roman officials. Josephus does not like these guys at all when he writes about them. He credits the Zealot Party in bringing about the final destruction and wrath of Rome as they destroy Rome in 70 A.D. Simon, if he was not saved by Jesus Christ at this time, he probably would have died in that massacre as well. But Christ rescued him from his sins first, called him to apostleship, and actually made something useful of his life. A testimony of grace. And then there's Judas, son of James. Very little is known about him, but in the other lists, he's known as Thaddeus. In Matthew and Mark, they call him Thaddeus, not, James, not Judas, son of James. Some of the textual variants actually refer to him not as J- Judas or Thaddeus, but as Lebius. Lebius. It's likely that he was actually known by three names. Judas, Thaddeus, and Lebius. The last two are kind of like nicknames. And it's, it's not hard to understand why this guy would be, prefer to be known by a nickname. I mean, if your name was Judas, in light of the next name on the list, wouldn't you want to go by a different name as well? In John's Gospel, John records a time when Judas asked, just Judas, son of James, asked Jesus a question. And he writes in John 14.22 that Judas, not Iscariot, Judas said to him, Lord, how is it that you're going to manifest yourself and not to the world? There's quite a stigma attached to the name Judas after he betrayed Jesus to death. In fact, you, may, you might know this, but the little epistle at the end of our Bible, just before the book of Revelation, if you're turning too fast, you'll miss it. That uh, little That little epistle, you know what the name of it is? Jude, right? That's the name of Jesus' half-brother. And his name is actually not Jude, but Judas. We prefer Jude. (laughs) Nicknames for Judas here, Lebius and Thaddeus, both are good alternatives to call him. Lebius has as as its root the Hebrew word for heart, which is lave or lab. Thaddeus came from Aramaic. It also meant, it could mean heart. It also could mean praise. So perhaps we could think of Judas, son of James, as the apostle with the heart of praise. Must have been a joy to be around him. Kind of wanted to pair him up with Thomas. Let them kind of cancel each other out. One final name on the list, Judas Iscariot. He's always going to be remembered in each of the lists as the one who betrayed Jesus Christ. And we have important lessons to learn by his inclusion among the twelve. This never took Jesus by surprise, right? He always knew who Judas was, what his nature was, and what his character was. And even he knew him when he went up on the mountain in Luke 6 to pray. He knew who Judas was, what he would be like, what would happen. And yet he included him. It was part of the Father's will. We want to ask and answer the question, why? According to John 6.71, this Judas is the son of Simon Iscariot. And that tells us that the name Iscariot refers to his origin. Iscariot is literally Ish, the Hebrew word for man, plus Karioth. So Ish, Karioth. Literally, he is Judas, man of Karioth. Karioth is located about 20 miles east of the Dead Sea. Which means Judas Iscariot is the only man among the twelve, who's not a Galilean. He's a Judean. There's a lot more we're going to learn about Judas Iscariot, as well as the rest of these men as we proceed. But the note about Judas Iscariot's identity as a Judean, that brings us into a second and even a third point in our outline. We just got some general introductions. Now second, let's make some general observations. And we're also going to cover at the same time the third point in our outline, some general lessons. We'll put the two of those together so don't be confused by that if we go between, back and forth between them. Our observations are really going to tie right into some important lessons for us as well. 
We want to ask a number of questions at this point. First, why these 12 men, not others? Why select predominantly Galileans and only one Judean? Why are a third of them fishermen? Why join tax collector with political zealot? And why so many lesser-known apostles? Men who didn't seem to make a Peter or John size impression on the pages of Scripture. Why don't we have testimonies to their mark on history? With regard to that last question, we need to understand that these are 12 ordinary men. 12 regular, common men. They are nothing remarkable in and of themselves. They're nothing to be written home about like all of us really. And the, the less prominent among the twelve who are not known, we just kind of know their names and know maybe a thing or two that they said, but we don't know much in history. And yet they were used as the foundation of the church that we are now a part of. Listen, so much has happened throughout all of church history by unknowns. And we're among them. We count ourselves privileged, joyful to be among the unnamed. Because the less we're known, the more Christ is known. The more He is what explains the longevity and the strength and the steadfastness of this thing we call the church. We're good with that. I hope you are. I hope we're not all trying to make our mark on history. Because God's in control of that. Judas is a guy. Judas Iscariot's a guy who wants to make a mark on history. Sometimes you don't want to be that mark. It's a black mark. It's a blot. Let's be content with finding where God wants to use us and doing that with all of our might. We'll do with all our might and we'll leave the results to Him. These men, most of them, are Galileans. They're people whose region was identified by a body of water, the Sea of Galilee, rather than an ethnic and cultural identity in Judea. So these are common men. They're not wealthy. They're not well-educated, well-connected. As 1 Corinthians one twenty-six puts it, among the apostles, not many were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But you know what they all have in common? They're believers. They're believers. With the exception of Judas Iscariot, they were all true believers, true disciples. Listen, God does not need the wealth and the wisdom of man to accomplish His perfect, sovereign goals. He doesn't need the political connections of Jerusalem or the Judean elites. He doesn't need the learning of those who are educated in all the rabbinical traditions. God uses believers simply because their faith puts Him on display. They put their faith in a God who moves mountains. Let me show you something just to illustrate this. Turn back, if you're in John's Gospel, turn back to John chapter 2. John chapter 2. When Jesus entered Jerusalem for the first time early on in His ministry, You remember what happened there? John chapter 2. You look at verse 13. We'll start there. Take a look. One one of Jesus' first acts in His messianic role, as He came in as, as the Jews' Messiah, His very first act was to clean up His Father's house because it had fallen into the hands of the corrupt. Look at John 2.13. The Passover of the Jews was at hand. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. What's evident from that account? Early on in Jesus' ministry, there were two temple clearings, one at the beginning, this one, and then one at the end. But what's evident from this account is that the the spiritual leadership of the Jews 
has been and still remained utterly and totally corrupt. Jesus knew the eventual outcome because their reaction to His house cleaning here foreshadowed their ultimate rejection of Him. Look at verse 18. The Jews said to Him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Look how non-self-reflective they are. What sign do you show us for doing these things? Like, we're the authorities. We're in charge. Who do you think? you? He just drove everybody out. That's power. They've got the audacity to question Him here. What sign do you show us? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple. Three days I'll raise it up. You know what that points to? Crucifixion. The Jews then said, mockingly, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days? He was speaking about the temple of His body. And when therefore He was raised from the dead, His disciples remembered that He had said this. And they believed. They were believers. God can do much with believers. They believed the Scripture and the Word that Jesus had spoken. Verse 23, when He was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in His name when they saw the signs that He was doing. But Jesus on His part did not entrust Himself to them because He knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for He Himself knew what was in man. Interesting phrase, isn't it? He Himself knew what was in man. Very next verse, look at it there, John 3.1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. He's a member of the Sanhedrin. He's a scholar. He's the teacher of Israel. And though he seemed to be sympathetic and friendly in this meeting, even respectful and somewhat admiring, Remember, he's, Jesus is 30 when he enters into ministry. Nicodemus is probably in his 60s or 70s. This is a man half his age he's speaking to. Thought he was respectful. Jesus identified him, though, as one who rejected his testimony. Jesus identified the fundamental problem with Nicodemus from his very first reply, John 3, 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot, that is, not able to, See the kingdom of God. That's why verse 10, Nicodemus does not understand these things. That's why verse 11, Nicodemus does not receive Jesus' words. He's unregenerate. He's he's not born again. He does not believe. Now by contrast, let's turn over to Matthew's Gospel. Matthew 16. And look at verse 13. Matthew 16, 13. And let's see the contrast there between the spiritual leadership of Jerusalem represented in this man, Nicodemus, and then some simple believers, the ones whom Jesus had chosen. When Jesus asked the apostles in Matthew 16:15, who do you say that I am? They were spot on in their answer. They were theologically spot on. Look at verse 13, Matthew 16. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, who had, by the way, earlier been beheaded, so he's no longer around. They think he's an incarnation, a reintroduction of John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. You know what all that indicates? Blindness. Spiritual blindness. Verse 15, he said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, son of Jonah, son of John, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Now, if Peter had stopped talking at that point, said no more on that occasion, that would have been great. Perfect. Once again, he stuck his foot in his mouth by rebuking the one he had just identified as the Christ, the Son of the living God. Another indication of his struggle to restrain his own impetuous nature. But before Jesus rebuked Peter as a mouthpiece of Satan himself, he commended him as a true believer. That was what Peter was. Foibles and all. Weaknesses, character flaws and all. 
His confession, the confession of all the apostles, was evidence of the supernatural working of His Father in heaven. They truly belong to the Father, and so they truly belong to Jesus Christ too. The selection of these 12 ordinary men, these Galileans, these non-scholars, these non-wealthy, not-of-noble-birth Galilean men, they're an indication of God's rejection of Israel's current spiritual leadership. They're yet another indictment on Israel's shepherds. They are the revelation of God's will and intention to start over with a bunch of nobodies. Keep in mind, this appointment of the twelve comes right after the Sabbath controversies we saw in Luke 5 and 6. Remember, Jesus did the unthinkable in the judgment of Israel's Sabbath day watchdogs anyway. He did the unthinkable. He actually had the audacity to heal a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath day. It wasn't a life-threatening issue, but it was an issue of mercy. Remember how the scribes and Pharisees responded? Luke 6.11, they were filled with fury. How could you be filled with fury at an act of compassion? But they were. Revealed their ungenerate state. And they discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. So the growing hostility, this opposition of Israel's leadership against Jesus, their heart rejection of their own Messiah, that's early on evident to Jesus. And as He sought the will of His Father on that occasion, Luke 6, the Father guided him in the selection of twelve apostles, and God set aside the establishment leadership to establish a new leadership. Why twelve men, not another number? Because again, this ties to the indictment of spiritual of the Israel's spiritual leadership. Jesus told them in Luke twenty two, twenty nine to thirty, I assign to you, as my father assigned to me, a kingdom that you may eat and drink at My table in My kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Wow. From Galilean fishermen, from tax collectors, from murderous plotting zealots, and a whole bunch of nobodies lifted up to judge the twelve tribes of Israel in the Millennial Kingdom. Isn't that fascinating? Why these twelve men in particular? Why these names and not others? Well, they're nothing resembling the current leadership of Israel. Nothing at all. And that's what commends them to God. Rather, they represent the constitution of the new people of God. Back to what I briefly referred to earlier in 1 Corinthians one twenty six and following. For consider your calling, brethren. And this is all of us. We're all included in this, right? Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God, He chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. Why? So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. You know, growing up, it's probably every country, but especially in our country, growing up in this country, going through grade school and junior high and high school, into college, we all want to be something, don't we? We're all told we can achieve great things. We get bumper stickers, even for being mediocre, you know? You know, my child is a student, <laughs> whatever. But some of us make honor roll or whatever we are. And we all want to be something. And we're told, you know, here in America, you can be president if you want to. Frankly, you look at some of the presidents we've had and you, you do look at what a great country this is. But you don't have to be aristocracy to ascend into high political office or places of great influence. But you know, the opportunity in our country does create an, another opportunity. And that's an opportunity for pride. We're thinking that we, ourselves as individuals, must matter on the world stage. That we must be something. That we must be not what is foolish in the world, but wise in the world. We want people to respect us for our wisdom, for our strength, for our power, for our influence, for whatever it is. Folks, that is the wrong way to think. 
In God's economy, there's a sense in which the less we are in the world, the greater we are in His sight. The more bypassed and overlooked we are in the world's sight, the more He'll make Himself known through our life and our testimony. It's not that we just sit back and do nothing. We work hard. We work really hard. We study. We practice. We, we give ourselves time and energy. We're sacrificial. Sometimes it absolutely drains us. But at the end of the day, it's nothing that the world would count or care about. It's what God uses, though. These 12 men represent divine judgment on religious establishment there in Jerusalem. The wealth, the power, the intellectual achievements of men, the political influence. God set aside all of that. All the Jewish leadership with all of its spiritual bankruptcy and its rank hypocrisy, which quite frankly was fouling the land. He bypassed all the wise and the noble and he elevated this group of nobodies. But these nobodies, they're truly somebodies because God had blessed them with a gift of faith. And now, they're the ones who represent the true constitution of this new assembly made up of the true people of God. There are other observations, lessons we can make as well. Let me be really brief and just mention really one. As we've already mentioned, there are striking points of amazing diversity in this band of 12 apostles. Four fishermen, no superior education, no social connections or family wealth. There's a tax collector who hovers near the bottom rung of the social ladder because of his collaboration with the Romans. He's hated by his own people. Also joined to their numbers this political zealot a man who's eager to see all Roman collaborators, including Matthew, dead. God's got a real sense of humor, doesn't He, in the church? Bringing us all together in the diversity of this band of apostles. There's also just such a diversity of personality. You see the impulsive Peter, the pensive John. You see the pessimistic Thomas, the optimistic Andrew. you got James, the strong leader of Philip, the careful, maybe thoughtful scholar. A wide array of personality types. What lesson do we learn from that diversity which is so evident in this group of men who form the foundation of the church? Well, first, God intends the church to glorify Christ by its manifold diversity. As you see, like in a cut diamond, the more, the more angles on that diamond, the more it displays the light. Same thing with His people. God ransomed for Himself through Jesus Christ, Revelation 5.9, a people from every tribe and language and people and nation. That's for purpose. In each local church, we have young and old and rich and poor, married and unmarried, strong and weak. The church, by its very constitution, look, Frank, let's admit it, we're all people who would not be hanging out together if it weren't for the church, if it weren't for salvation, would we? But Jesus shows these first apostles, and in their diversity, He demonstrates that the church is also equally diverse manifesting the full-orbed, wide-arrayed glory of God. The second uh, thing here we see is the unity that He produces in us. In all of this diversity, He produces this unity and it shows His intention to demonstrate His great wisdom. His great wisdom comes across by bringing unity out of diversity. How in the world do you bring all this together? You look in any worldly organization, European Union, or anything you want to look at, and you see how they try to bring unity out of diversity all the time. They cannot join the two together. It's like the Roman Empire and the statue in Daniel's prophecy. It's, got, uh, it's iron, but then it's got feet of iron and clay, right? Because iron and clay don't mix together. It's brittle with strength. They're never going to mix. They're never going to come together. There's never going to be true unity. There's going to be a false unity when the Antichrist comes and sets up a false unity. That that's going to be demolished. When that stone comes rolling, knocks that statue into pieces, grows into a mountain. A mountain, a unified mountain made up of diverse people like you and like me. That's something that's utterly impossible for man. True unity from the core all the way to the surface. It's only possible through the Spirit of God. That's the truth of 1 Corinthians 12, 4-6. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. 
varieties of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all in everyone. The church, by its diversity, brings glory to God because its unity demonstrates the unifying presence and power and wisdom of God. It's unexplainable otherwise. Might add a third lesson. We observe in the diversity of the apostles that we can look to what Christ accomplished in them. Because of his almighty power, we can find reason for hope. We have hope because he is powerful. There's no hope in man. But in Jesus Christ, we find every reason for hope. He's the one who explains these men, their faithfulness, their integrity, their fruitfulness, their perseverance to the end. It says in Acts 4.13 that the leaders in the Sanhedrin, when they questioned these guys, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived they were uneducated, common men. They were astonished. There's no human explanation for this, but they recognized that they had been with Jesus. We only need to look at one man, Simon, to see that Jesus is the one who turns Simon into Peter from an impulsive, unreliable mess into a foundation rock for the entire church. Jesus is the one who made him rock-like. It had to be. Because on his own, Simon was weak and vacillating. But this guy endured to the very end. He died the good testimony of a martyr and one who was crucified upside down. The apostles at the foundation of the church, they point to the true constitution of the church. Its diversity serves to put the manifold glory of Jesus Christ on display. The unity it displays through diversity reveals His wisdom and also His power. And all of that just gives us hope. Revelation of the glory of God in the church is that by His Spirit, He's unified His people in Himself and it starts with men just like this. People like you and me. Just regular folks. Jesus made them the enduring foundation of an enduring church. A church that sprouted disciples all over the world. All of them demonstrating the same marks of regeneration and belief and unity. Well, with those general introductions to the apostles and having made some general observations, noted some general lessons, I want to close with some general cautions, okay? Some cautions that will help set us up, not just for the next week, but really not just the study, the character studies of the apostles, but, but also for all biblical study. All biblical study is going to be included in these cautions. And so I want to give you just two general cautions as we study these apostles. First caution, be careful in reading history. And second, be quick to apply what you learn from history from these guys to yourself first. Okay? Be careful in reading. And secondly, be quick to apply. So first, be careful. As you read this history, as you read about the apostles, be careful that you don't commit the error of assuming you understand them too quickly. As American evangelicals, so much of what's popular on our shelves today in our bookstores and online and all that is what, that which attempts to make these stories more familiar to us in our time. It reminds me when I was growing up as a little kid, I saw those maps in school. You ever see those maps? And it has the continents of the Western Hemisphere, North and South America, smack in the middle of the map. And it takes the rest of the world, which is really more prominent in landmass, and it divides it, puts it on either side of the edges. That's what we call self-centered, right? I mean, we've got ourselves in the middle. And similarly, I mean, why not, right? America's the greatest country on God's green earth, right? But similarly, we've come to think and read history in much the same way. We read the Bible in the same way. We read history and Scripture as if our own time was at the epicenter of history rather than recognizing that Jesus Christ is the epicenter of all human history. And that makes what happened in His time and His culture very, very important. So we want to make sure rather than making their time and their culture and everything conform to our time and our culture, Rather than reading their culture through the lens of our culture, we need to be careful to go back into their world. And that means we have to allow that story on the pages of Scripture to be as unfamiliar as it actually is. And let that unfamiliarity make us somewhat uncomfortable. I was listening to a lecture from the church historian Carl Truman at Westminster Seminary. 
He was talking about this very tendency and applying it to how people read Martin Luther. They want to read him as if he's a purely modern thinker like one of us rather than a pre-modern thinker. Luther's fears about the devil, his fears about traveling through the dark forest at night and thinking the goblins are all going to come and eat him up. Those fears were very real to him. They're not just a bunch of metaphors. He's a pre-modern German living in a pre-modern world like all Europeans at the time. Truman was saying we need to read Luther as a man of his time. Same caution applies to us as well as we study Scripture. As we see Jesus and his apostles speaking and acting, our first reading should not be to make them more familiar to us. To attempt to round out all the rough edges and ignore the things that seem odd to us. Rather, we need to pick at those unfamiliar threads and pull them out from the fabric of the story so we can observe those strands more carefully. It's good and instructive to understand what's unfamiliar to us. When we do that, we're going to see their true humanness. All their creaturely qualities as they interact with their world. And at that point, and only at that point, will we make the connection to our own lives in our own time now. We're going to find common ground with them as creatures interacting with the world and the culture around us. Just as an example of that, you don't need to turn there, but in Luke chapter 9, 51-56, You know what happened when Jesus said, hey, we're going to travel through Samaria? Remember that? The Samaritans said, no, you can't come through here. Remember what the sons of thunder did then? James and John? Let us call down fire from heaven and consume them. Remember that? They're not speaking metaphorically there. That was no joke. They really did intend to use the power that Christ had given them to call down fire from heaven and burn the Samaritans alive. They're very serious about that. And, and they thought they were justified. They thought that this was a, something to be commended for, this zeal. It's a horrible thought, isn't it? It really should shock us. And then it should lead us to ask questions so we seek to understand what explains that kind of prejudice and that kind of hostility leads to a second caution about reading the biblical narrative. And particularly when we read about the foibles and the follies of the apostles, we need to slow down. Make sure we understand the text and then reflect on it long enough that we apply it to ourselves in a rebuking and a correcting way. We should never think, wow, I would never, I would never think and act like those guys say those kinds of things. Oh, Really? Take the sons of thunder calling down fire on the Samaritans. Have we ever had those kind of impulses? I've heard people say we should just nuke the Middle East. Turn all that sand into glass. Really? As Christians, you're going to say that? Those are human beings out there we're talking about. Those are people made in the image of God. Those are families. Precious men, women, and children, by the way. Christians, do we really want to nuke them? Is that what we want to see happen? We want a strong man in the Oval Office to push the button? It's one thing to say, nuke them from Greeley, Colorado, when you've got no nukes at your disposal, no power to launch nuclear warheads, but it's another thing entirely to say, with your finger on the button. That's what these two apostles, James and John, were saying. Because they had power. They just displayed it in mighty acts of miracles, signs, and wonders. No wonder Jesus called them sons of thunder. So when we slow down long enough to understand these apostles, along with all their cultural prejudices and hang-ups and even the things about them that make us uncomfortable, we need to turn and then apply that to ourselves in a rebuking and a corrective way. Where do we find evidence of those ugly things in ourselves? Look, that's how this study as we pursue some character sketches of the Twelve and how this is going to become most useful to us, this is, this is what we need to do. We need to be careful to read the story carefully, make proper observations, and then we need to turn and put the crosshairs on our own lives and hearts first. That's how this is going to be instructive. If we'll understand these men as men of their times, we're going to see how they are and are not like us. And we're going to see how their lives are both a confrontation with ourselves And then at the end of the day, also a great encouragement for us and a source of hope. Let's pray, shall we? Father, thank you so much for 
the time we've had in your word. We thank you for these men. Lord Jesus, we thank you for choosing these men, even down to Judas Iscariot. By your wise choice, your sovereign will, you added him even to the twelve. And all this is so instructive to us. We just pray for your grace and wisdom as we engage this study, as we pursue this line of thinking. And we just pray that all of this would make the Scriptures come alive to us. That your power and wisdom would be on display in the lives of each of these men. That we could learn and understand them in a way we haven't before, but then turn and apply these lessons to ourselves. And we pray that through our lives, we would be to the glory of Jesus Christ. We thank you so much for your word and how real it is, how perfect it is. We ask for your grace and wisdom to understand it and then to put it into practice in our own lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.